Welcome to the Talking Tall Rounds series, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Very good morning to you. My name is Scott Cameron. I serve as the Section Head of Vascular Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic. We have a really exciting Tall Rounds session to present to you today where we're going to discuss non-atherosclerotic arterial disease, particularly in the lower extremities. And one of the strengths of the vascular medicine physician is that we're continuously looking at every organ system, since every organ system has a blood vessel. And every now and again, we'll actually pick up on some really rare diagnosis. But as I think you're going to find out, um, sometimes these diagnoses are not quite as rare as we would like to think, and they're very, very easily missed. And one of the reasons we chose this session is that many of the diseases we're going to discuss today are actually found in the certification exam by the American Board of Internal Medicine and Cardiovascular Disease. And so with that, I would just like to open and um, introduce our first speaker, who's uh, Dr. Medhat Chowdhury. We'll invite him to the podium. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm going to start tall rounds with a case uh, uh, that uh, was seen on service. So uh, the patient is a in her early 70s, she has a history of uh, COPD and uh, she had a lung transplant in 2005, a 30-pack year smoking history, and uh, she has antiphospholipid syndrome with a history of thrombotic stroke and uh, dural venous sinus thrombosis. I was on chronic anticoagulation for that, and she was admitted because of uh, a GI bleed and was being worked up for a source. Um, and we were consulted for essentially anticoagulation recommendations. Uh, during the interview, she reported that she was having severe calf pain that had been ongoing for about uh, for several months, and uh, she uh, had pain even with walking about 100 feet that resolved with rest. On exam, uh, she had some residual aphasia from her prior thrombotic stroke, but uh, otherwise the exam was unremarkable except for a very, very diminished dorsalis pedis and posterior tibial pulses bilaterally. Um, on the, her Doppler tones were also monophasic. And at this point, we were suspecting some uh, uh, form of PAD. We went in, ahead and got uh, PVRs, and um, initially we got an ABI and then a PVR. And as you can see from the PVR, she had very uh, dampened, uh, very dampened recordings throughout uh, all segments of her uh, legs bilaterally. And if you look at the pressures, her brachial pressure was uh, she was normotensive, and uh, normally you expect a much higher uh, high thigh pressure. Uh, compared to the brachial pressure, but here you're seeing it's it's quite low. And uh, at this point, we were suspecting whether she could have some form of inflow disease. And uh, we went ahead and got an arterial duplex. So uh, I'll start with the grayscale images here. And as you can see here, that there is some heterogeneous plaque adhered to the wall, very minimal athro, you know, throughout all the segments on the left side uh, and the right. And um, on color Doppler, uh, as you can see here, there's good filling throughout the vessel. And uh, normally you expect a nice uh, brisk upstroke and uh, you know a QRS type pattern on the waveforms. But here you're seeing a very parvus tardis monophasic waveform that is present throughout all the segments. This was also seen on the left side. And uh, essentially, at this point, given um, very minimal athro in the iliacs, we were suspecting either some form of disease in the proximal aorta or the heart. We did a point of care ultrasound. And uh, I'll play this uh, scenic clips here. And you, uh, we initially noted that there was a, a thickened septum 
um, and uh, there was no significant regurgitation or, or uh, you know, flow acceleration in terms of valvular uh, stenosis. So uh, we went ahead and got a dedicated echocardiogram. And uh, this apical four-chamber view again shows this thickened septum. And um, I'll pull up the parasternal long-axis view over here. And uh, what you can see coming in and out of view here is, is, is the papillary muscle. And um, normally, uh, we expect the papillary muscle to be uh, a little less apically displaced. And uh, given that uh, this, there was some suspicion that uh, whether this could be related to the clip itself or, or the, the view we were seeing or whether this was apically displaced, we were suspecting outflow tract obstruction related to the displaced uh, papillary muscle. So um, we confirmed outflow tract obstruction with uh, amyl nitrite. Um, as, um, as you can recall, with the vasodilator and decrease in afterload, this worsens outflow tract obstruction in patients uh, with uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or, or a thickened septum. And uh, this shows the classic dagger-like uh, pattern seen with aortic stenosis. So uh, we did, uh, or a cardiac MRI was recommended to investigate uh, the source of the outflow tract obstruction. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, due to non-cardiovascular related illnesses, the patient opted for palliative measures and further workup uh, was deferred. So uh, a few take-home points uh, from this case, um, you know, it's, it's important to have a very broad differential when uh, evaluating someone with vascular claudication, especially in someone who has, uh, you know, dampened waveforms and uh, in, in someone who has inflow disease. Um, you know, a point-of-care ultrasound, as we showed, uh, is a very helpful uh, tool to delineate further testing. And, um, you know, dynamic outflow tract obstruction, although rare, can be a cause of vascular claudication. And uh, as we'll see in some of the other talks today, um, inflow disease is not just because of atherosclerosis, and there can be many other reasons. So um, with that, I will conclude. Thank you so much for listening. So the case we just saw was a classic example where a patient has very typical symptoms of claudication, which most cases is atherosclerotic in origin. But as I think you're about to see, there are many, many causes. Um, we typically think of 12 or 13 different causes of claudication. And one of the challenges is that one needs to retain really strong skills in general medicine in order to make sure we don't miss these. Um, so with that, I'd just like to go through a little bit of the pathophysiology and give you kind of the framework that vascular medicine physician typically will go through that will help us clinch um, a diagnosis and when it doesn't seem um, quite as straightforward as anticipated. Uh, no disclosures. So good analogies. When I think about peripheral artery disease, an emergency in the peripheral vasculature, of course, is critical limb ischemia. It's kind of equivalent to a STEMI in the coronary vasculature. The superficial femoral artery is akin to the left main because it's the major driver in delivery of blood flow to the lower extremity. The ankle brachial index, as we just saw, is excellent for interrogating the vasculature. Not only can it sometimes tell us with PVRs where the lesion is, it is in fact diagnostic for peripheral artery disease. Um, the arterial duplex is also incredibly important because they're dynamic images and it's akin to the echocardiogram where you'll interrogate the valvular function and ventricular function. Um, the only notable difference, of course, is we use the angle of insonation of 60 degrees. So as we found out, when you look at the ABI, um, Dr. Triodri showed you that there was a dampening um, of the typical expected signal. There's loss of the 
three phases that we would see. The amplitude was decreased and there was spectral broadening in this patient. And if you look at the duplex, as he clearly showed, there was evidence of atherosclerotic disease, which is not unusual in the patient who's slightly older, but certainly it, didn't, it wasn't to the degree where it would be obstructive, but yet we have this dampened signal by arterial duplex that we must explain the spectral broadening and decreased peak systolic velocity, implying there may be a more proximal stenosis. So when we approach a patient with potential vascular disease, I always keep in mind that common things occur commonly. And so common things, when you're going through them, this helps with the diagnostic framework. It'll guide the initial testing and then finally get to the diagnosis. So we sometimes think, is there a stenosis either locally or upstream? Is it unilateral or is it bilateral? Um, is there an embolic event? And if there was an embolic event, what was it that precipitated it? Was it an in situ event? Was it dissection? Um, is there impaired endothelial dysfunction? And then lastly, the thing we think least about, is there an enhanced sympathetic tone to the blood vessels? The smooth muscle that surrounds the blood vessel certainly in some cases can give claudication in any limb. And that's one I'll tell you gets missed quite a bit. So if you look at upstream stenosis, on the left you can see PVRs, and if you just look at them, you, there's clearly a unilateral discrepancy here with decreased uh, peak amplitude of these PVRs starting at the high thigh cuff and propagated all the way down to the toes. So by looking at this, I would say there's probably stenosis at the level of inflow, and the angiography clearly shows that's the case. The next thing is, is there an embolism from a proximal source? Um, sometimes we see embolic workups maybe a little bit more extensive than, than could be. We, we ask ourselves, is there disease in the vasculature upstream? Is there an aneurysm or a dissection that we might need to account for? Um, or is this an atheroembolic event, which I'll tell you is probably one of the more common things. If you look at the popliteal artery, if it happens to be aneurysmal, or if you look at the infrarenal aorta, if it happens to be aneurysmal, it's not uncommon for us to see disturbed blood flow. Disturbed blood flow biomechanically activates platelets and it triggers the coagulation cascade. And for that reason, it's not unusual for us to see an intraluminal thrombus in patients with infrarenal aneurysms of the aorta. It's less common in the thoracic aorta, in part because it comes from a different part of the body embryologically, but certainly aneurysmal disease or dissection more proximately is something that we think about. Is there a dysregulated vascular function? And so if you think about this, it's always important to consider the connective tissue that surrounds the blood vessel is there something going on at the level of the connective tissue that's causing remodeling or compression of the artery? Is there enhanced vasoconstriction from a sympathetic overdrive? Is there impaired vasodilation? Is endothelial-derived nitric oxide and prostacyclin, which contribute mostly to basal vascular tone, impaired because of a systemic disease? And we sometimes are able to diagnose these. And lastly, is there a medication effect? There are about five or six medications that can markedly decrease blood flow to arteries and if one's obviously not attuned to the way these medications work, it's easy to miss. Now, lastly, context matters. So if you look at an extremity, ask yourself, what was the patient doing when this happened? Was the patient resting? What was the clinical context? If you look at this patient's fingers here, clearly you can see decreased blood flow to all of the digits. This was a recurrent event with the patient when they underwent anesthesia. So again, you, can, you go through the diagnostic framework as embolism, possible. It's possible, but it's not very likely because it's affecting all of the digits. Is thrombosis possible? Is it a proximal source? Certainly if the patient had been instrumented, you could think about atherombolic showering, but that's typically not the physical examination 
of embolic showering. This is the physical examination we'd see in a patient who has no blood flow. And so then we go back, is there enhanced sympathetic tone? Well, it turns out that during general anesthesia, patients with pheochromocytoma, you can actually precipitate that. This was a patient with extramedullary pheochromocytoma, which is very easy to miss and actually was quite reversible in this patient's case. And then finally, the underlying etiology would always determine the treatment. If it's ischemia, we want to remove the obstruction or bypass it. And that's where we work very closely with our surgical colleagues, as you'll hear. If it's inflammation, you treat the inflammation. You don't stent inflammation. You treat the inflammation first and then figure out if the patient needs anything else. If it's external compression, relieve the compression. If it's an embolic event, identify the source. Is there an aneurysm? Is there a dissection? And was there tissue factor released from the subendothelial compartment triggering the extrinsic level of the, anti, the, the coagulation cascade? We see that quite commonly. And then lastly, with medications, can we help this by using simple sympatholytic medications or nitric oxide donors, or in some cases, antithrombotic medications? I've been asked to speak about mid-aortic syndrome. Uh, Disclosures are shown here, and uh, I don't think any of them are relevant for this, this talk. Uh, you know, we heard Dr. Cameron make the comment that common things happen commonly. At the Cleveland Clinic, uncommon things happen commonly. And um, mid-aortic syndrome is one of those things that we see. It is uh, um, essentially an occlusive disease that happens in the descending thoracic or the thoracoabdominal aorta with or without branch vessel uh, involvement. So the syndrome, like all syndromes, are really based on the symptoms that are presented. Um, oftentimes these patients will have a combination of upper extremity hypertension and distal hypotension, like we see in the, in, as the topic is appropriate in a lot of our patients with claudication. But the symptoms can be varied depending on where the occlusion occurs uh, and which uh, vessels are being malperfused. So, uh, claudication is common. You can see renal failure. You can also see heart failure, uh, just as you can see in patients with undiagnosed coarctation. Uh, but in general, malperfusion of beds downstream with hypertension upstream. Uh, I did a quick PubMed search of this, and uh, no surprise, um, it is rare. I found 96 um, uh, uh, citations came up when I just put in mid-aortic syndrome, and almost all of these were case reports. There are some collections of series, and, um, and there is uh, this, this paper, which I thought it was pretty cool because uh, Pat O'Hara was the senior author on this from 1980. Uh, but there is this Hallett classification. I'm not sure that this is a classification that anybody's using very often, uh, just probably because we don't see this, this disease very often. But the importance of it is that there's a, uh, uh, it's important to characterize the patients with regards to where the occlusive disease is involving the aorta and uh, whether any branch vessels are involved. And um, the etiology is mixed. So it can be uh, amongst some of the things that, that we've heard about, like tachyosis arteritis or, or giant cell arteritis. Uh, atherosclerosis, although I know that's the topic of today, is non-atherosclerotic claudication. This study is the largest one in the literature. It comes from the group in FUI in Beijing, where they describe 143 patients with segmental stenosis, and, and their definition was that they had to have a gradient greater than 20 millimeters across the stenosis. And you see a nice uh, image from this paper where they show um, several examples of different patients who present with this. Uh, there's also um, some uh, congenital causes or um, 
or mixed uh, diagnoses, some uncommon diagnoses like uh, coarctation, neurofibromatosis, Williams syndrome, uh, Bichette's disease, which is a uh, inflammatory uh, disease uh, that represents a small percentage of the patients with this middle aortic syndrome. The treatments, no surprising, are antihypertensives, uh, antihypertensives and a combination of the techniques that we use when we find obstructive disease, either stenting or stent grafting, in situ reconstruction with surgical uh, interposition grafting or extra anatomic bypasses. Uh, this was another study from the literature, not quite as big as the one from China, but I thought it was important to point out from the group in Houston. Uh, it took them over 20 years to compile a series of 13 patients that, that ranged in age from two to 67. Uh, all these patients were treated, mostly open, a few endo. Uh, but I like this figure that they showed where they showed which zones of the aorta were involved with the uh, stenotic process, the mid-aortic uh, mid syndrome uh, process. And most of these were involving the mid to distal descending aorta and then uh, uh, various uh, segments of the uh, visceral aorta. These are a few memorable patients of mine that I'm gonna show you. Um, this 34-year-old lady from Afghanistan uh, with poorly controlled hypertension was found to have a 40 millimeter gradient between her upper and lower extremities. Uh, and no surprise, because she basically had no descending thoracic aorta, as you can see on the image on the right. Uh, and quite remarkable how her uh, internal thoracic arteries and the, uh, and the collateral network has developed across her abdominal wall and her chest wall to compensate for this lack of a descending aorta. This is a pretty extreme example of mid-aortic syndrome. Uh, it's a lot more than mid, it's like the whole thoracic aorta uh, that was missing. We were able to reconstruct this aorta and we did it with two incisions. You can see the image on the left. We've got a retroperitoneal incision that allowed us to get down to her abdominal aorta and then a, a higher uh, a thoracotomy uh, that we did. On the, you can see on the upper right side of that upper left image. And then two interposition grafts, one sewn to her arch, one sewn to her abdominal aorta, and then connected in between around the level of the diaphragm. And uh, you can see on this post-operative image already those collateral networks are starting to, uh, to be relieved of, of, their, of their duties because we, she now has a new aorta. And uh, this really relieved her symptoms. Uh, she went home, I think, on one really small dose of a beta blocker and, and previously had really no control of her hypertension. Uh, this is similar to sort of the uh, series of patients that we see with aortic coarctation. And we've written about our adolescents and adult patients with coarctation before. Um, and I thought it was important to point out in that series of over 110 patients, the indications to operate in only two of them was this long segment coarctation, which is essentially the mid-aortic syndrome like the, the lady that I showed a minute ago. Um, one of these patients, the one on the right, had an attempt at stenting. The problem is the stents are only gonna get so big in these patients, and when it's a log segment of coarctation, it's unlikely that stenting is gonna expand that whole aorta. Uh, I took this lady in her uh, late 30s to the operating room and did an ascending and descending bypass. You see that nice uh, 3D reconstructed image on the right, and a couple of intraoperative photos of what this looks like. We sew a graft to the ascending aorta, we pass it retrocable, and sew it to the descending aorta. Uh, and we use that quite often in that series. We use it 20 times. This is another really interesting case, and I think this is an important one to point out. 
this young man we just treated a, a couple of months ago, 29 year old with severe hypertension, claudication and fatigue. Um, you know, I really liked this guy because he wanted to get back to work and he just found that he couldn't do it. He was, he was uh, dealing with disability from this. And you can see his tiny little aorta on these 3D images on the left. I included this skeleton on the left so you could get a sense of how small his vasculature really was. His um, root was normally formed, but his ascending aorta is only about 15 or 16 millimeters. And then as we work our way through his aorta, his distal descending aorta is about 11 millimeters. Uh, not a whole lot different than some of the coarctations that we treat. Uh, once we get into the abdominal aorta, it's about eight millimeters. And then you can see he's got some atherosclerotic disease in his common iliacs as well that are only measuring about four millimeters. And so we came up with a staged hybrid treatment plan for this gentleman. Uh, we thought the first thing to do was to treat the atherosclerotic components of his iliac disease because claudication was one of his most important symptoms with some stenting on the right and stenting on the left vessels and had a really nice result in both of those. And then while we were there, we passed some catheters up into his aorta. And this is just a picture from my, my phone demonstrating uh, you could see that um, there is a, quite a big differential between the systolic blood pressure and his proximal aorta that was 207 and, uh, and his distal aorta is 150. And, and as we pulled our way sort of through that, that aorta, that most, uh, uppermost aorta, uh, we could see this was a, a long gradation through his entire aorta. So I took him to the operating room, or you know, uh, we, we, we just switched our, our plan. We, we, we were already in the hybrid operating room. Um, uh, we brought the pump in and, and um, did a sternotomy and replaced his ascending aorta. I thought the most important thing is that we optimize that, that inflow uh, above his aortic root. So we put an interposition graph in his ascending aorta, turn that 16 millimeter ascending aorta into a 24 millimeter aorta, and then use an 18 millimeter graft based off his ascending aorta, passed it behind his inferior vena cava uh, um, and uh, to his descending aorta. And you can see we had that real nice uh, reconstruction. Interestingly, he did have atherosclerosis through much of his descending aorta as well. And so the lumen of that descending aorta, not only was it small to start with, but also had disease and really had, he had really had no, no uh, um, reserve in his entire aortic tract. So those are some unusual cases, but things to think about. And we have lots of great options for our patients. We see um, more and more uh, uh, patients, uh, especially with congenital disease, living longer that need late treatment. They fare better, I think, with earlier and proactive treatment versus urgent treatment. There's no doubt about that. We have to appreciate that both endo and open approaches to vascular disease in general are always complementary, and we need to better understand these complex presentations of this, of this diseases. Thank you very much, and um, got to give a shout out to uh, uh, all of you to put this on your calendar. We hope to see you for the next CLE Symposium next fall. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Like what you heard? Visit Tall Rounds online at clevelandclinic.org slash tallrounds and subscribe for free access to more education on the go.